0: Good morning, my name's Ricky, I'm the youth pastor here, and uh, every once in a while I get the opportunity to preach, so today is that day, and I'm really excited about it, not only because it's an awesome text, and I hope we all get something out of it, but because we're wrapping up our sermon series, God with us, through the Old Testament this summer, and the cool part about that is, we hope that it laid an awesome foundation for where we're going next, and that's the book of Matthew, and we're going to spend... a really comprehensive study in the book of Matthew. We're going to spend some extensive time studying that book together. So that'll start next week and and again, the whole idea, the whole goal in in this was to really uh make way for Jesus, God with us, the anticipation, the hope of the promised one in the Bible. Uh this week my 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 family and I, we got back from a trip to Idaho. We had never been before. And it was really fun. Uh, So we we headed east towards Idaho, and I'm really directionally challenged. So thank goodness for uh, the GPS, the maps, and all that, because I'm really frustrating uh, when it comes to directions and trying to find a place. It could it could turn bad quickly for me. But uh, we got to Idaho. We left at like three in the morning, thinking the kids would sleep. And jokes on us, right? They were wired. Uh, they weren't they weren't bad, but they were just alert, very alert for that period of time. So it was a fun and interesting trip. If you've never gone on a road trip with babies and toddlers, I suggest you do it. Uh, try it out. You can borrow ours. They love it. Um, anyway. Fun, fun trip, great vacation, spent some sweet time with some friends of ours, got to go to a new place we'd never been before, and then we got to come home, which is always nice coming home. It's always great. And uh, coming home, we decided to go a different route than when we went. So we went through Diamond Lake, Crater Lake, you know, that way. And then we came home through the gorge in Portland, back this way. And, uh,. It's really interesting for me because, like I said, you know, I'm like, I don't know. We got to go that way. We got to go west towards home. West is home, uh, and we got to make it there somehow. So let's go. So thank goodness for my wife who drove the first legs of the trip. Um, I don't like driving, but she does, so it's great. So it beca- it was really unfamiliar to me, right? Like I've never been there before. Never taken that road before. I've never been to La Grande or whatever else is out there, Pendleton. Before, and it was very unfamiliar to me. It all looks the same it 's like desert and no tree, not many trees and um, you know all that stuff so it, it was really unfamiliar. I just knew we got to go that way and eventually, as we started heading that way, west towards home. Um, things became a little bit more and more familiar. So we, we got our first glimpse of familiarity as we came into the Columbia River Gorge, right? We're like, oh, I know that river. I've been to that river before. This is becoming more and more familiar. And uh, you start driving along it, and, and you get to Hood River and beyond, and, and it, it starts getting more and more familiar. I, okay, I've been here before. We must be getting close to home. And then you start to see familiar faces. We stopped for a bathroom break in the Dalles, and we bumped into Pastor Nathan and his family there. It was orchestrated. <laughs> it wasn't random. <laughs> that would be funny, though. I, we had known that um, they were heading to vacation as we were heading home from vacation, same place on the same day. So we're like, hey, where are you? And... Um, We met up for about an hour in the Dell, so that was really funny, but the idea is we we started to see familiar faces as we get closer to home, and then we, you know, passed the the waterfall, Multnomah Falls, and we're like, been there before, that's familiar, and you get into Portland, and the traffic, and you're like, this is very familiar, I know this, and uh, then we made another pit stop in Wilsonville, where my brother and sister-in-law live, and Um, we've spent a lot of time with them up there, so we know their little city in and out. So this is great. We stopped there and swam in the pool and spent the afternoon there, and it was awesome. Familiar faces, familiar food, familiar neighborhood and pool and all that, and it was great. And then we made the final stretch of our trip, like two and a half hours from Wilsonville home. Um, We waited till evening again (laughs) in hopes that the kids would, you know, sleep the way home, and then we can just transfer them to their bed and then you know slowly creep away from their bed and and hopefully they'd sleep and again um they didn't well one of them i'm not gonna out my kids in front of everybody but one of them slept fine the other one was super happy to be there so anyway uh came home i-5 at night very familiar right uh, that's why we did it at night because it's super awesome. We know how many, we know where all the mile markers are and how many miles each stop is till home, and where the good bathroom stops are. But oftentimes kids aren't compliant with rest stops and bathrooms, so it's like we know where the good spots to pull off on the side of the road are on the off ramps and do the thing there and um, all that stuff. Very familiar. And as we've been going through the, New Te- or the Old Testament this summer, that's kind of the idea. We started in the book of Genesis, and, and our hopes was to show you the story of the Bible, which is, which is Jesus, the promised one, the hope, the Messiah. And we start to see him. The whole Bible's about Jesus. You know, lots of other stories, but they all point to and foreshadow Jesus. So we start in Genesis, and we start to get these little vague clues about this promised one coming. And in Genesis, um, like I said, it's, it's really vague, and, and you can read right over it and not know it. At, at the fall, in the Garden of Eden, when, they, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and, and God now says, this is a fallen world, and pronounces the curses, there's this little glimmer of hope that if you read through it quickly, you'll miss. And he says that one day the seed of Eve will be victorious, will crush the head of the serpent, though his heel be bit. And, and you don't really know what to do with that passage until you continue along in the story and you get more clues as to who this seed of the woman is. And you get in reading the story and, and the picture becomes more and more clear as you read. And we get all the way up to the minor prophets where we are today. And and the clues aren't vague anymore. In fact, they're oddly specific. Here's a couple of them. Here are a couple of the the the... The clues, part of the the puzzle pieces, pictures of of who this promised one that we have been learning about through the, the whole Old Testament would be. So in Micah chapter two, we're told, or excuse me, in Micah chapter five verse two, we're told that this promised one would be born in Bethlehem. So we're starting to get really really specific. Like, this is the city, this is the town in which. This promised one is going to be born in. So be on the lookout. And, and now we have a direction in which to look. Bethlehem. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. It says that this promised one who would be born in Bethlehem. Is going to be born of a virgin. Okay. Um, let's see literally anybody else try that one. Right. So now we have. Now we're on the lookout. Okay. Someone's going to be born of a virgin. If you hear about that. That's a good indication that the Messiah is here right It goes on in Isaiah chapter 11 that this Messiah born of a virgin in Bethlehem that his family lineage would be that of the of King David he will be from the line of David so now all these pieces are starting to come together and the picture is becoming more and more clear of who we're looking for who this promised one who this Messiah would be In Malachi chapter 3, it says that this promised one would be preceded by a messenger. So if you hear of anyone talking about the promised one coming and coming very soon, making a way for this person, then we know that the promised one, Jesus, the Messiah, would be coming soon. Malachi goes on to say in chapter 3 that this person would make a powerful entrance into the temple. And we know that's true of the life of Jesus in reading the Gospels, that he came into the temple. And he made a scene, didn't he? Flipping over tables and stuff like that. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, it says that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, that he'd be riding on a donkey. That's very specific as to who we're looking for, right? Black Toyota Corolla, 1998. Bumper sticker, a fish bumper sticker probably but that's very specific as to who we're looking for. In fact, there are over 300 specific messianic prophecies, uh, 300 predictions as to who this person would be, what he would be like, and what he would do, all about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Over 300 specific prophecies. You may be familiar with some of the research done on the probability of Jesus fulfilling his prophecies. A book written a number of years ago by Dr. Peter Stoner, Wrote and it's called Science Speaks, and it, it became very popular in the Christian world. Uh, the book was based on the science of probability and vouched for by the American Scientific Affiliation. So, a bunch of science people said this is legit. And it set out the odds of any one man in all of history fulfilling even only eight of Jesus's 300 prophecies just eight. What are the, what's the probability? What are the odds of someone being able to duplicate what Jesus did on a much smaller scale, just eight of his prophecies out of over 300? And the probability that Jesus could have fulfilled even eight or anyone would be one in ten to the 17th power. That's one in like a bunch of zeros, zeros for days, right? Absolutely impossible to do that, just eight of them, to repeat what Jesus did, and he did it perfectly because only Jesus could do that. And he goes on and he, he made the illustration famous by saying that would be like taking the entire state of Texas and filling it five feet tall, full of silver dollars, right? And then painting just one of those red and dropping it over the state of Texas out of a helicopter and then putting you on the opposite side, blindfolding you, spinning you around, and then the very first coin you pick up would have to be that marked coin in the entire state of Texas, five feet tall of coins. Impossible. Impossible. And that's just for eight of the prophecies. Impossible unless you're Jesus. So how the prophecies lend themselves to where we've been in the Old Testament is that they set us up for the advent of Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, and Jesus coming, His perfect life, His death, and His resurrection, and, and what that means to us. So they say, here's who we're looking for, here's the hope we have in the promised one, here's what He's going to be like, be like, be out, excuse me, be on the lookout for Him, our hope, the promised one, Jesus. So we understand that the, purf- the purpose of a prophet Specifically, Joel is what we're going to be in today and and look at the implications of Joel and and what that has on history and, and the implications it has on us today. But Joel's purpose as a prophet, his primary function was to serve as God's representative, as God's ambassador by communicating God's word to his people. See, in the Old Testament, common people, you and I, did not have direct access to God. There had to be a mediator because God's holy... And we're sinful. The people are sinful. And, and and like Grant talked in communion, that relationship has been severed by sin and broken. And unless the cleansing power of the blood, which in this time was animal sacrifices, which was never enough. But unless that blood cleansing came, we couldn't have that direct access to God. So only priests had direct access to God once a year in the Holy of Holies. And likewise, prophets had access to God In a different way, they heard directly from God and they took that message and and disseminated that to the people. And their job was very um, important, but unfortunately not many people understood it and and really listened to the prophet. And the prophet was often scrutinized and hated. Um, So they had direct access to God. And the cool part about that is the prophets would often say the one who were coming or the one who were looking for, Jesus, the Messiah, the Promised One. uh, He will make all things right again that were made wrong in the Garden of Eden when sin entered the world. He will set things right. In fact, through Him, we can have a right relationship with God again. We, us, all of us, can have access to God through a relationship with Jesus in fact, Jesus is the true and greater prophet and we through him may have act, direct access to God like the priests did and like the prophets did. In Deuter- there's a few interesting um, prophecies and, and verses in the Bible that explain how Jesus uh, mends this relationship we have with him. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses speaking, talking about a prophet like him who is to come, who we have access to God through. And it says this in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18, Moses says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Then the Lord said to me, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell the people everything I command him. I will personally deal with anyone who will not listen to the messages the prophet proclaims on my behalf. So there's this. There's this prophecy of this prophet who is to come, who will make things right, who will speak on God's behalf directly to the people. Fast forward to the book of John and talking about John the Baptist as he drew crowds. He was the messenger, right? He was the one who was making straight the path for the prophet, for the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus. And, and he started to draw a crowd with his baptisms and the people asked, John, are you the prophet? Capital P. Are you the prophet we're expecting? So they were expecting a prophet, right, who would come. And of course he says, I'm not. In fact, there's one coming behind me whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to loose. In John chapter six, verse fourteen, people seeing Jesus do a miracle, Jesus exclaim, or excuse me, the people said of Jesus, Surely this is the prophet whom we have been expecting. And then a chapter later in John 17, Jesus told the people, My message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me, because a prophet delivers the message from God to the people. So Jesus is taking this office and saying, I am the one, the promised one, the prophet, the Messiah, the one you are looking for. So as we read a little bit in the book of Joel. It's my hope that you would spend some time with this, maybe today, tomorrow, this week. It's only a three chapter book. We're going to kind of bounce around in some verses this morning. But as we read Joel, understand that the purpose is that we might have this same hope and anticipation in Jesus that he was trying to get them to understand in this book. So Joel, not much is known about Joel. If you're not there yet, go ahead and turn to the book of Joel. Um, Really, this is, what you see in this book is what we have as far as background on him. He preached in Judah, and and people aren't even sure when he preached. There are two uh, compelling options. One could be pre-exilic before the exile during the time of king joash and that could make sense because of the extreme amount of wickedness happening in that day sets up for the message he's bringing to them Uh, the other compelling case is that he preached um, post-exile during the time of nehemiah ezra and that could make sense because of the destruction that they're in uh, and the message could fit perfectly he doesn't really lay out what specific sin other than just the sin of of apostasy and apathy that the children of Israel would have been engaged with, but he doesn't have a specific sin that he's calling them out for other than just their general apathetic hearts towards the Lord. And that's kind of where the background we have on this guy, Joel. So if you're there, Joel chapter one, let's read a few verses and then I'm going to, I'm going to read about, I'm going to read seven verses from chapter one, then jump to chapter two to read a few verses from chapter two, verse one. So, Joel chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts has eaten. And what the hopping locusts left, the destroying locusts have eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has fangs that of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion... Sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor ever will be after them, through the years of all generations Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Joel's pronouncing a judgment on Judah in his time that they have experienced in their recent history, in their recent past. And he's calling this judgment the day of the Lord, because he is saying, God sent locusts to wipe out all the crops and leave it in utter devastation. And this impacted them on an economic scale, and it just wiped out this people to where they were left wondering what was going on. And Joel's message is, this is the day of the Lord. You guys are experiencing it. This is God's judgment for our our, our apostasy and our apathy. And these locusts have come in and they've destroyed everything, which is going to hit them on every single level you can imagine. And he's calling it the day of the Lord and he's saying it's from God to get them to wake up. He's telling them, wake up, wake up, he tells them. There's a sense of urgency in his message. So what he's doing is he's saying this is a very real and present uh, reality that they're, they're going through right here and right now. And in the second, or in, excuse me, the second half of the second chapter on into the third, he's saying, but... In the future, there's going to be another day of the Lord. And if you can use the same imagery of the locust, except intensify it immensely, the second day of the Lord that is coming in the future is going to be far worse. So you have some sort of measure of what this was like when God brings his judgment down upon the land and upon the people. Think of it except greater in the future. And that is going to happen. One day God is going to judge righteously the wicked. And the question will be for us, is what did we do with the opportunity we had with his son, Jesus? Because the day of the Lord brings destruction and judgment, but the day of the Lord, when God shows up, also brings hope and salvation. God always brings his hope and his plan for salvation in that. So we see two chunks in the book of Joel. The day of the Lord past and the day of the Lord in the future that we haven't seen yet that they experienced already. And right in the middle, in the book of Joel, in chapter 2, verse 28, which we're going to read here in a second, um, He talks about this time in between their past day of the Lord and this time between the future day of the Lord, a time right in the middle where God will pour out his Holy Spirit on on all people. And that's the time that we live in today. But before we get there, I want to read a couple other verses. And again, um, we're kind of bouncing around, so don't feel that you need to jot all these down. Uh, if you would like the notes later, I can give them to you. But chapter, these are the, the mentions of the day of the Lord throughout the book of Joel. There's five of them that are specific to what God is doing. Chapter 1 verse 15 says this, The day of the Lord is near. The day when destruction comes from the Almighty. How terrible that day will be. Chapter 2 verse 1, sound the trumpet in Jerusalem, raise the alarm on my holy mountain, let everyone tremble in fear because the day of the Lord is upon us. Chapter 2 verse 11, the Lord is at the head of the column, he leads them out with the shout, this is his mighty army and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing, who can possibly endure it? Chapter 2 verse 31, the sun will become dark, And the moon will turn blood red before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. Chapter 3, verse 14. Thousands upon thousands are waiting in the valley of decision. There the day of the Lord will soon arrive. So again, you have this book broken up into two chunks. Both of them are the people experiencing the day of the Lord, both in a past time that they use as a backdrop to show the day of the Lord that is coming in the future. Um, Pastor John Piper makes an interesting note about this in one of his books talking about, or excuse me, one of his commentaries talking about the day of the Lord. And what he notes and what he points out is in the first day of the Lord that they already experienced, Judah already experienced is that it's, it's God really fighting against his own people to get them to wake up and see the urgency of their sin and repent of it. He's fighting against his own people because Joel says the locusts that came against the people were sent by God, and he, qu- he equates them to an army, and at the head of that army is God sending the locusts upon his own people to get them to wake up and realize their apostasy, to realize their apathy— and wickedness against the Lord. And one of Joel's biggest themes in the book is is repentance, to get right with the Lord. So um, he says that the first day of the Lord that they experience is God fighting against his own people to get them to realize their utter need for the Lord and to come back to their first love. And in the second day of the Lord, the one in the future that is to come, it's God fighting for his people. It's God fighting for his people and for his glory that they, again, may realize that God is victorious over all and that they're on, that they're with him and get to be with him. And that's an amazing difference between the two chapters. Okay, so turn to Joel chapter 2 if you're not already there. And I want to read this hinge passage between the two, the past day of the Lord that Joel mentions and the future day of the Lord that we have not experienced, which is a time here and now, the present reality that we, you and I live in, and the implications it has on us. So Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 28, speaks of this time in between God's visitation, judgment, and salvation. So Joel chapter 2, verse 28 says this, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So he's saying there will be, talking to his audience, he's saying there will be a time in between this present day of the Lord that we are facing and the future day of the Lord that we know is coming. There will be a time where God will pour out his spirit on all people and all people who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we understand that the fulfillment of this prophetic passage is when Peter stands up at Pentecost and preaches his sermon and the spirit falls and the spirits poured out and people began to prophesy and speak in tongues. And this is the age that you and I live in. That God would have a people who would be so captivated by who He is, that who call on His name to be saved and would be so captivated by who He is that it fills their mouths with words declaring His glory. It fills their thoughts, their dreams, their daydreams and everything they, they do Every, every part of who they are would be so filled with who God is and His wonder. It says that, the Bible says that, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And we, now, like the title of our sermon series implies, We now have direct access to God, and not just access to Him, but we have the filling of the Holy Spirit. When we call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit comes to live, make his home inside of us. And that's something we often neglect as believers. So whether we're going through a hard time or a good time or a bad time, whatever it is, we know that we can have that immediate encouragement, comfort and hope and peace by by communing with the Holy Spirit, God who lives inside of us. And that's such an awesome thing. And that's something that we ought to let captivate us more and more, more often than we do. Uh, Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God and it's about the Holy Spirit and how oftentimes we don't access the God who lives inside of us. And and and, and what a like how devastating a thing to not acknowledge that in our life. To acknowledge him in our life. So As we sort of wind down, I've got five responses from this book that Joel had for the people and that I think the Lord would be saying to us today. Five responses, and and again, this is the Holy Bible, the the living Word of God, the sword that pierces. And I'm confident that the Lord has a message for each of us if we not close our hearts and our ears to it. So five responses. Uh, One is this. uh, Simply, first and foremost, be right with God. Um, We'll have the list up on the screen if you want to jot down notes. But the first response is to be right with the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 13, Joel, in preaching repentance, says, rend your hearts And not your garments. So there's this idea that some of the um, Pharisees and religious people of the day adopted that it moved from a heart issue to an appearance issue. And you see that throughout the Gospels where the Pharisees would make these outward shows to show, hey, everybody, look at me, I'm fasting. Or, hey, everybody, look at me, I'm mourning and wailing um, because I'm so godly. Or, hey, everybody, look at me, I'm tithing a lot of money. And it became a show. And, And this came all the way back into the Old Testament. And Joel makes a point to tell him, it's not about this outward appearance of sackcloth and ashes and ripping your clothes. And he says, but rather rend your hearts and not your garments. So he moves it from external to internal. And, and that's not to say a behavior change is a bad thing, but that is to say it, it can't precede a heart change. So when your heart changes, your behavior also will change. But if you try to change your behavior in attempt to please God or be pleasing to God, then it just doesn't work that way when it works backwards. So he's saying, rend your hearts and not your garments. So the first and foremost is being right with God, having your heart right with God. Number two. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Number two. Preach the good news. Joel starts out his book by saying, Listen up, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of this land. Look what's happening. Look what the Lord is doing and then he goes in verse 3 and says tell your children of it and let your children Tell their children and their children to another generation So this message that he says is the word of the Lord that came to Joel this this word of the Lord that, that is the message of the Lord, which is The day of the Lord is at hand. He's like take this message That God is coming with his judgment and salvation and pass this message on. And that the way of escape is through calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. And then he says, and have a repentant heart. So he's saying, take this message and share this message. Take this message and share this message. We today, as Christians, as believers have the responsibility and the command to take this message of this God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that He comes forth as the true and righteous good judge will one day judge the wicked and offers salvation. We have this message to to, to, to provide the way out, which is Jesus. To say, in Jesus there is hope. In Jesus there is life. In Jesus there is salvation and forgiveness of our sins. So we have the responsibility, you and I, to preach the good news, to preach the gospel. Number three is to be penitent. This message in the book of Joel, of of repentance, is one of the overbearing themes. In fact, in every chapter Joel always says, "Hey, it's our responsibility to 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 repent of our wickedness, of our sins and remember." Joel doesn't call them out for a specific sin, but rather they're just their their apostasy or their apathy towards the Lord. And he's saying our response is we got to turn away from whatever it is that's holding us back from pursuing the Lord wholeheartedly. We've got to turn away from whatever sin is ensnaring us. We've got to turn away from whatever wicked thing we're involved in. Whatever that is, we've got to turn away from whatever it is holding us back so that we can fully run towards the Lord. Number four, Ben, can you put the fourth slide up? Number four is live with urgency. Live with urgency. Urgency. So Joel is talking about the day of the Lord. One is their present reality, and one is the future to come. And he's saying, because we know the Lord is going to show up again, it ought to inform how we live today, right? Because we know the Lord is coming back, it ought to inform how we live today and give us a sense of urgency or a sense of hope and anticipation for the Lord's coming. It's, it's a common theme in Christianity that we're, we're, we should live... Um, expectant of the Lord's coming again, Maranatha. So we have to live with some sort of urgency. And we see in in chapter 3, verse 11, Joel, speaking of this time to come, says this, hasten, And come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to that valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding areas. Be ready. Suit up. Hasten the day. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Verse 10. I love that. So live with a sense of urgency that the Lord's coming back and we don't know when and we have a responsibility to take his, his love and his message to the world around us. I know some of us, myself included, can just slip back to, to living a passive life in terms of faith. And I think the Lord would tell us today is to, to wake up and to live with urgency. Number five and finally is be spirit-filled. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit that we would be so captivated by God's Holy Spirit that it informs how we live how we think, what we do, everything about us would be informed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Amen. Be spirit-filled, as believers, when we when we trust in the Lord for salvation, uh, His Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and again, we have direct access to Him, and, and sometimes we we forget that, we neglect that. Um, whatever it might be, but being spirit-filled is that daily asking the Lord to guide me, to lead me, to to make the fruit of the Spirit evident in my life as you seek to follow Him. So again, that list is be right with God, preach the good news, be penitent, live with urgency, and be spirit-filled. Um, I'll invite the worship team back up, and I want to pray for us because Many of us are on very different journeys uh, in life. Many of us are are just beginning our Christian journey. Many of us are further along in our, our walk with Christ than others. But like I said earlier, this is the holy word of God. And it's relevant for today. And there's a message in it for all of us. If we would be so sensitive to the Holy Spirit to hear it. So as I pray for us. Uh, i 'd love to for you to, to have a real conversation with the Lord and, and ask, how do I respond to you today in, in what way maybe maybe you don't maybe you 're not a Christian, maybe you don't know the Lord and, and you 're here and you 've heard this message, and I hope that the, that God would draw you near to himself and maybe that first step is for you is to be right with the Lord to say yes to Jesus today. We're going to have people up here praying and, and, and um, able to talk and, and pray just right after the service and during the last song. And if that's you, I would encourage you to just take that step today and that yes and come and get prayer. Um, m- maybe it's boldness in your faith to preach and proclaim the good news. Maybe it's this act of turning away from a certain sin that has you tangled up or ensnared that you just need to let go and walk away with and maybe even get help doing that. Uh, or just a sense living with a sense of urgency or being spirit-filled, following His leading every day. Whatever that may be, whatever step is for you, uh, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you and will work in you. So let's pray together. God in heaven, I pray that by Your Spirit You would draw each one of us um, to take that next step, to respond in whatever way You would have us respond. But I pray, God, that wherever we are, that this would not fall on deaf ears, but that it would take root deep in our heart and that we'd be challenged and shaped by it, shaped to look more like your son Jesus so that we can reflect him back to the world. So God, I pray that you would draw us closer and closer. Be with us the rest of this week. May your glory be known in our lives, in our families, in our community. Amen.